So, Matthew chapter 25. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to, uh, to turn with me there. Uh, Pastor Ken is, uh, is away today. He uh, chairs a, a foundation board that's uh, part of our conference of, of churches. And uh, they had some meetings this week, uh, this weekend really in Phoenix. Um, but even in his absence, we're going to continue this series of messages that we've called Heart Shaping. And this series is really a pre-Easter series. It's leading us right into Easter, which if you want to think about it in this perspective, is only five weeks away, which seems a little odd. I mean, it is early. It's the end of March, but it doesn't, doesn't it feel like Christmas wasn't all that long ago. And, and so here we are already launching into Easter. And so to prepare us for that uh, remembrance and celebration, we're studying the last four chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. And so for us as a congregation, it's eight weeks of preparation. But these events that we're looking at in the life of Jesus and the teachings that he gave took place during this actual last week of Jesus' life, or sometimes now known or referred to as Holy Week. And so from the triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday through to the betrayal of Jesus on Thursday, um, or or, uh, to his death and burial then on Friday morning, all culminating in his resurrection on Easter Sunday. So these are some of the historical and significant events that we are preparing to remember and celebrate. And in Matthew's gospel, the events of this last week of Jesus' life actually begin already in chapter 21. And so the teaching today from chapter 25 is really part of a much broader teaching that Jesus shared with his disciples on Uh, on the Tuesday of Holy Week, if we're looking at it kind of in our contemporary uh, calendar. So by starting the series at the beginning of chapter 25, we're already well into the last week of Jesus' life. I I share this simply because I don't want us to think that just because we're taking eight weeks that that these events took place during a a similar time span or or maybe even a longer uh, period of time in the life of Jesus. But more importantly... I want us to place ourselves into that last week and and begin to focus our minds and our hearts on the historical and personal and theological implications of Jesus' final week. That discipline of of putting ourselves into those events, I I believe, really is heart-shaping. And so this series is about preparation and, and getting our hearts ready Um, to to just encounter Jesus again and what he did uh, for us. And so when Pastor Ken asked me to speak today because he was going to be away, I I first actually understood uh, that I would be speaking on Matthew chapter 26 and not chapter 25. And so I had already started looking at that passage, and, and even the verses, verses 31 through 46, they lined up with some of the sections there in, in, uh, in my New International Version Bible. Jesus predicting Peter's denial, and then the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane just before Jesus was arrested. And then, of course, a couple of days later, Ken and I are having this, this conversation, and all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute. And, and I discover that it was actually chapter 25 that he had in mind. Now, now, I share that little piece of information because um, it's a bit of a disclaimer because I didn't choose this passage. And, and when I found out about it, um, I thought that Ken just maybe just intricately lined up all the events of this meeting and planned it around so that I would be stuck with this passage. Of course, that's not true. Um, but but, it, but it, it's, it's a hard teaching. 
And I also was thinking about, man, another, another sheep message. Last time I spoke, just back in January, we journeyed through Psalm 23. But at least that sheep message was, you know, it, it had these nice pastoral scenes, right? If you can envision Psalm 23 and, you know, green pastures and quiet waters and a shepherd who provides it all for us. But chapter 25, where we do find ourselves this morning, ends with, Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. These are hard teachings, serious teachings. But even in the midst of that, God has hope and encouragement and joy. And so we're looking this morning at the teaching of the sheep and the goats. Teaching about the separation of the sheep. From the goats. Now there's some disagreement among scholars about whether or not to actually call this parable. Does it have the characteristics of what we would distinguish as a parable? And for the first two weeks of this series, Pastor Ken has walked us through two parables um, that were at the beginning of, of chapter 25. And Jesus often taught biblical and theological truths using parables or stories that gave a a word picture or an image to illustrate a truth. And Jesus had this amazing ability to teach a kind of a beneath-the-surface lesson using um, parables. But these verses here in chapter 25, they're kind of part parable, but they're also part factual, and so it is hard to to really categorize it. And yet the main theme of preparation and being ready that we have learned from the first two studies really continues on into these verses. And Pastor Ken has been using an an illustration that I think has been really helpful to me at least, and so I want to just remind us of it, uh, about a firefighter that is always ready to respond to the call. And I think that's just kind of an excellent image for us to be to, to wrap our minds around. These verses, these, these st- teachings that we're discovering are all about being ready and being ready to respond. So this parable, as I might call it, continues to make that point. We need to be ready. We need to be prepared. We need to be watchful. Now, uh, I, I thought I would approach this passage the way my mind sometimes works, and, and it just sort of came to my mind uh, uh, very logical, um, but maybe in a way that a journalist might a- approach a story or, or how a student might do a research paper or, or, a, or a detective might do a, an investigation by asking five W questions and one H question, right? We know the questions probably well. It's the who, the what, the when, the where, and the why. So who, who did it? Like, who are the main characters in, in this event? And what is actually taking place here? And when does this happen? What's the timing of this, of this event? And where does this event take place? These are all questions that we're going we're gonna to answer. And, and why? I mean, that, what's the reason for this or the, the motivation? And so we'll do this kind of basic information gathering. And then I hope that we're going to get a complete picture before we ask that final question, how? How do we then apply what we're learning? All right? So first of all, who? Who are some of the main characters 
in this parable as Jesus told it. Sure, there are angels, and he refers to the nations, and references to the Father, and even the devil and his angels are mentioned. They're all significant, but for our purposes this morning, I just want to highlight four important characters. Of course, number one, there's Jesus. And even though he is teaching his disciples... He is referring to himself throughout this message. He, he refers to, he uses the phrase, the Son of Man in the opening verse, in verse 31. And then in verse 34, he refers to the Son of Man as the King. I mean, Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of all lords. Uh, the second group of people or the person that we want to identify is the sheep. In verse 34, Jesus refers to the sheep as those, he says, quote, who are blessed by my Father. They're blessed by my Father. And we, uh, all of our, a lot of our singing was really focused around that, about having this good, good Father who blesses his children. And in verse 37, he describes these sheep as righteous. And it's just important to note right off the top that he doesn't describe them as self-righteous. And I'll make a point about that a little bit later. But for now, notice again that sheep are this consistent image for the people of God. So that's the connection there. And then there's goats. Verse 41, he refers to the goats as those who are cursed. Okay, it's hard language, but there's reason for that as we're going to see. And then there's this fourth group, the least of these brothers and sisters of mine. So who are these brothers and sisters? Like, this is a very important ID to make, right? Because we really need to know, because as we're going to see in a moment, that how we respond to the least of these has huge implications for us personally. And so who are these? We might ask, are they just all needy people? Are they anyone who has a need? Are they all Christians? Because whenever and wherever Jesus used the term brothers or sisters, he's referring, in fact, to his disciples or to his followers. But some of you said maybe he's just meaning Christian missionaries, those who are out taking the message of, of the gospel to people and on, on Jesus' behalf, that these are his brothers and sisters. Some have even said that maybe they're Jewish Christians, referring to those Jews who were missionaries for Jesus during the Great Tribulation. And there might be other interpretations of who are the least of these brothers and sisters of mine. But we have to look at it first in context, and then in a specific context, and then in the context of the whole of Scripture. And in this context, Jesus is specifically identifying really all Christians. Because that term brothers and sisters, he uses consistently to refer to his disciples throughout the Gospel of Matthew. But it is defined by this term, least. And so some have suggested that it means specifically then kind of like needy Christians. Often it is the needy ones who are overlooked in the community. And the disciples argued about who was the greatest in the kingdom. You remember that when they did that? And Jesus then said, well, I'm going to direct your attention to the children. So the least of these. And so Jesus and then later the Apostle Paul, they would say that Christians have a responsibility to care for each other but specifically and especially the least and insignificant among them. But you might remember the teaching then also about the Good Samaritan and Jesus' teaching that his followers should what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he went on to define neighbor as anyone who might be in need. In in other words, we can safely say that everyone matters. 
there is a verse in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, that I think really captures this uh, principle really well. The Apostle Paul used this. He wrote this to the church in Galatians and said this. He says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, okay, all the opportunities that come our way, he says, let us do good to all people. And then adds, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Get that? So it is all people, but he's also saying that that family looks after itself. And if we have the same father, we're brothers and sisters, and so we care and look out for each other. And so who are the least of these brothers and sisters of Jesus? Specifically, needy Christians, but generally all people in need. The persecuted, the poor those who are being taken advantage of, widows, orphans, those in prison. The list is endless. So yes, everyone matters. So that's who. What about what? What is actually taking place? What is happening in, in, uh, in this parable that Jesus is telling? And in verse 32, it is very clear. He says, he, okay, that is Jesus or the Son of Man, the King, okay, Jesus himself, will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And so in a word, what is happening here is judgment. Now it's hard for us to to think in these terms sometimes. It, it, It makes us uncomfortable. It raises all sorts of questions about God. And while it is absolutely true that God is love and he's full of grace and full of mercy... He is also God who is holy and just. And as we get to know God, we have to hold all of these attributes of God in tension. So just because the Bible clearly teaches about a final judgment, that then doesn't also contradict in any way that the truth that he is a good, good father. And that he blesses his children. In fact, the very, in this text he says he gives an inheritance to his children. The kingdom, no less. But notice that it is a gift, this inheritance. It's not anything that they earned. And it was a gift because of the relationship that they had with the Father and with the Son. And while thoughts of judgment are hard for us to wrap our minds around with, don't you think that in a world filled with injustice, Isn't it also good to know that there will be a final accounting? That all of the injustice will be made right. And in the words of Jesus, he says, He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he says specifically, the sheep he will put on his right, which is symbolic for a place of honor, and the goats will be on his left, which by implication then is a place of of dishonor. Now, I, I... Please don't think that these here people, they're the sheep, and you unfortunate souls are the goats. I don't mean that. You know, if we want to do this, it switches around. Um, You know, whatever way you're looking at it. So just try to visualize that in, in, in whatever way it works for you. But he says this after explaining why they are where they are as he separated them on the sheep to the right, the goats to the left. He says that they will go away eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. You know, it's, it is an unavoidable truth of Scripture. 
that there are two eternal destinies. Scripture talks about both heaven and hell. And while it it, might make it a little easier to to swallow by ignoring hell or, or just simply denying the existence of it, Jesus, even right here, clearly teaches that both exist. And, and worse, both are forever. It's not like this, it ends, it's over. Annihilation, as some might like to think about it. It's forever. Perhaps, though, there is comfort in knowing that it's Jesus. Okay? The righteous one. He is the one who will be doing the separating. So whatever our thoughts or our preferences or or our ideas about maybe who should go where will not have any bearing whatsoever on anyone's final destiny that is completely and fully in the hands of Jesus. So that's what's happening. When is this happening? When does this final judgment happen? Well, the opening verse uh, tells us, that basically answers this question for us. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. When Jesus comes in his glory. This, uh, this is referring to the second coming of Jesus, right? We know Christmas, we know Jesus came as a baby, born of a virgin. He lived, he, he died, he rose to life, he ascended into heaven. And the scripture teaches that, yes, there's going to be a day when he comes back. And the teaching of the Bible, though, is that we simply do not know exactly when that will be. Just don't know. We know what will take place, but we don't know when this is going to happen. Earlier in chapter 24 and verse 36, Jesus said, But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And then further on in verse 42, he applies this and adds, Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. And then continue on in verse 44. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. You don't know. But you do get the sense of how important it is to be aware that Jesus will come again and that there will be this final judgment. Because life as we know it is going to come to an abrupt end. And because we don't exactly know when... We always need to be ready. We never know when that call will be. It might be sooner than we think even. We need to be prepared. Now, in, in broader theological terms, and I don't want to get sidetracked here, and I don't have anything in my notes about this, but it just sort of came to my mind that maybe I need to just say this. But this is a whole study of end times. And there's many, many different views about the timing of the sequence of events, of when this is going to happen. And... and um, and I have to say that, um, like it talks about, the Bible talks about a seven-year period of, of, of great tribulation. And then there's a thousand-year reign. And, and, and we're not, like, it, it's hard to understand all of that. And I have to always say, and I always pray, I go, oh, I hope this isn't a cop-out. But I always step back and I just go, there are people that are way more educated than I am, scholars who have studied this to the nth degree, and they come away in disagreement sometimes. They all have these different views. And you can go and make a good biblical case for just about any of these um, positions on when the timing of these events happen. And so even as, as a church, or as a conference of churches, we've adopted a theological statement or a statement of beliefs that, that is very broad, and it just simply, basically says, it's going to happen. And it's going to be sudden. 
And we don't know when it's going to happen. And so that really is, is the teaching of when this is going to happen. Now, where is this all taking place? We know there is going to be this final separation, a judgment, and the image is of a shepherd uh, separating his sheep from the goats. And I don't know, I, I don't know if that you know, image of sheep kind of softens the truth and the implications for us a little, but the scene is described in the very opening verse there is Jesus coming in his glory. I think, you know, Jesus is trying to even find words to describe it. It's really indescribable when we think about the glory, the glory of Jesus. And there's going to be angels with him. And, and, and then Jesus himself, it says that he will sit on his glorious throne. Right? The king on his throne reigning over his kingdom. Can, can, can we even imagine what that might look like? And, and that's just it. We, we really can't. But it's clear that this is going to be a very visible event. It's going to be sudden. It's going to be seen. And, and it's going to be seen by all the nations because Jesus, the king on his throne, then it says that all the nations, all the nations of the world are going to be gathered before him. And my mind can't comprehend that. And I have no idea how this is going to happen. But I think the teaching of the scripture is clear that it will happen. So why? Why is there this separation? It's really the crucial question for us this morning. I mean, what, what's the motivation? Why are some put on Jesus' right and some to the left? And, and what is even the, the criteria that Jesus uses to make this distinction about each person? And the explanation for why the sheep receive the inheritance, it begins in verse 35 with the very opening word. It says, for, simply put, it's because they cared for Jesus' physical needs. I'm going to explain that in a moment and why that is significant. Okay? And we, maybe we, we're, if you're following along or if you've read it already in your Bible, you saw it in the, in the, in the video this morning, which, which, by the way, if you're following along in, in, in your Bibles, the, the bottom right-hand corner, you've noticed the number. That's just the reference uh, to the scripture uh, verse that's being read. Um, but, but, but Jesus runs through this list and he says, I was hungry, and you gave. You gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. Stranger, you didn't know me, but you invited me in. You, you gave me shelter. I needed clothes, and you, you clothed me. I, I was sick and you looked after me. And I was in prison and you came to visit me. Now as we look at that, that, that list though, it's absolutely critical for us to understand this. These are not works that save us. These are not do-good actions that kind of will be added to our our ledger, and we're going to stand before God, and we're going to say, hey, you know what, I did all these things, and therefore, you know, I'm in. See, we, we can't interpret uh, Scripture without considering the teaching of the whole Bible. And in, verse, uh, and in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, there's a critical verse that the Apostle Paul uses that really helps us understand how we are then made right with God, how we are saved, and how we experience eternal life. 
And there the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, For it is by grace you have been saved. That is why we've been saved. Through faith, okay? It's our faith in God's grace. And this is not from ourselves, this faith. It's, it's a gift of God. And so God gives, grants this believing faith to us. And then he makes it clear, not by works. Not by works. So that no one can boast. I, I mean, that, that's pretty understandable, isn't it? It's easy. I think that's a great verse. Because, because if it was by works... If it was by the very things we do, every time we, we clothed something, somebody or we, we fed somebody, or we, we'd be starting to keep track. Because we want to have our list. We want to be ready to prove, hey, this is why I deserve eternal life. Because of all these good things I did. And we might walk around and show off to one another. He says, no, no, no. It's not by works. You can't boast. But it's interesting. I didn't put it up there. Verse 10, and I was like, I've got to keep this short, but I'm going to add verse 10 because it says, for we, okay, those who have put their faith in Christ, are God's workmanship. Okay? So each of us are a work of art from God the Father. We are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Run a blank. Help me, for we were, were uh, created for that purpose. He, or, for, sorry, for, for what he um, prepared for us in advance. Isn't that incredible? Just that God has prepared things in advance of us even knowing the kind of good things that we do. Every time we have an opportunity, and I'll say more about this, to serve somebody, it's a divine appointment. It's something that God has just purpose put us in that place at that time for that purpose. It's incredible to think. In other words, Jesus isn't saying that, you know, because you did all of these things, you're saved. He's saying, because you are saved, you did all these things. And so caring for the needy is, in, in fact, evidence that we already belong to Jesus. That we serve him by serving others. It just becomes a way of life for us. That part of our character in coming to Christ is ultimately transformed from being primarily selfish and self-centered to being others-focused, just the way Jesus was. And when thinking about others' needs and meeting them comes naturally for us, then we know that God has really done a work of amazing transformation in our hearts. Right? When you see that guy stranded on the side of the road and your instinct just automatically, you don't even have to think about it, is just to stop and help without ever expecting anything in return or any payback. Right? And you're not thinking as you get out of your car going, boy, I hope someone I know drives by and sees me doing this. Or somehow add this to the list of my do-good actions or kind of another notch on my belt. Wow. Jesus is really going to be impressed with all the good things that I did today, and someday I'm going to be rewarded for this. Absolutely not that. 
You know why we know that this is true? Think about how the sheep responded when, in fact, Jesus laid out what they did. Okay? If it depended on what they did, think about their response here. We did? Right? When did we do that? There was genuine surprise on the part of the sheep, which is an indication that these were not intentional acts of service. You see, if we had been keeping track, we wouldn't be surprised. You'd be like, oh, finally, you noticed. So, that's the sheep. How? Let me try to apply this, wrap this up. How do we then live in light of this teaching? How do we apply that? I want to say, first of all, come to Jesus. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you have never said yes to Jesus, you've never crossed the line of faith, and I, I could think of many different ways of trying to describe that, but if you've never come into a relationship with Jesus, with God, through Jesus, where you have, as Ephesians said, just simply put your faith in His grace. and said, God, I don't, I don't deserve it, but love me. I believe that you died for me. You sent your son Jesus to die for me. And you died in my place. Come to Jesus. Red lights on. Oh, there we go. See, if you have come to Jesus, you know that your eternal life is secure. And so although this, this, this passage might make us a little uncomfortable, really it, it should fill us with joy. Right? Because we know. We have that confidence. We can have that confidence. And so come to Jesus. Two, tell others about Jesus. I have to tell you this week as I was preparing this, I just, I was just convicted to the core and really embarrassed in many ways over my lack of burden for those who are separated from Jesus. They're all around us. We just go about our merry ways. But I pray, if that's true also of you, that the Spirit of God just might use this passage just to convict our hearts and compel us to be people who just gladly and boldly, but not obnoxiously, share the good news of Jesus. And lastly, and I'm sure there's other ways that we could apply this, and I trust maybe the Spirit of God has already pressed something into your heart. But it's just serve Jesus, really by serving others. Because that really is the central principle in this passage and really the Bible as a whole that when we care for the needs of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, we are in fact serving Jesus. Let me give you a couple of really practical ways of looking at this. One is uh, the refugees and and sponsoring a family from, from Syria. I, I had to just think this week, because I we hadn't you heard it, we had no idea. Okay? So when Pastor Ken was away uh, at the beginning of January, 
he was studying, preparing, and planned this series of messages back in January. Put the scriptures down, put the dates down, and then gave me the wrong scripture. But just kidding. It's amazing timing. It's not a coincidence. I don't believe that for a moment. But here we are this morning, gathered in this place, learning about what it means to care for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine. And a plane has just landed at the international airport with people that we can demonstrate this to. It's incredible, don't you think? And I want to say this because I think it's really important to, 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 for you to have a bigger context. Because some of you are maybe are relatively new to Twilliger Community Church and maybe don't know some of our history. But I think it, this is worth noting because there's a, a significant tie-in to why we feel compelled to, uh, to, to sponsor a family from Syria. Um, our church is part of a conference of churches that's located in Canada, the U.S., and it's now known as the North American Baptist Conference of Churches, or NAB for, for short. And back in 1843, a German immigrant named Konrad Fleischmann, I could say that in German if you want, Fleischmann, okay? If that makes it more compelling for you. But he baptized five new believers to start, get this, this is the name of the church. You ready for this? The German Church of the Lord that meets on Poplar Street in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. They should have just named it something Poplar Community Church or something. But they didn't. From that one church in 1843, there is now over 400 active churches, 87 of which were started in the 1800s. Just think about it. We're part of a much bigger historical narrative here. The church in Armprior, Ontario, that both Pastor Ken and I have pastored, um, incidentally, not at the same time. He was there in the 70s. His girls were born there. I was in elementary school, and I like to kid him about his age sometimes there. But, but then he was there in the 70s, and I was there from 97 to 2007. Um, that church was founded in, in uh, 1869. Rabbit Hill Baptist Church, just down, if you go south on 170th Street to Rabbit Hill Road, and you head west towards uh, Rabbit Hill Ski Area, there's a little country church out there. It was founded in 1892. And it was really the, the first um, North American Baptist Church in this entire area. And there are stories told about how the pastor of that church would walk and would travel by horsepower, however he went, to downtown Edmonton. So picture that. There, none of this existed here. And he went downtown and he preached the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. People came to faith in Christ in Edmonton and they started churches. Central Baptist Church being one of them. So churches kept planting churches. And in 1940, if you think about the world scene, <laughs> it wasn't very popular to be German, Right? And many of these, these churches that had this German heritage, if they hadn't already, they, they started moving to English as the primary language of their services. And after World War II, many people from Germany immigrated to Canada, my parents included. 
And stories are told of how the pastor from Central Baptist Church would meet these new German immigrants at the train station and would help them find housing and jobs and connect them with other believers. And my point in sharing that is simply this, that our history is really one of being a refugee conference coming from war-torn countries, having faced persecution and atrocities. They came seeking a new life, filled with a hope and a future, and today, history is repeating itself. And so what we are doing as a church and sponsoring Anwar and Sarah is really part of our DNA. Food, clothing, shelter. We have an opportunity to step up and make a difference. And so... See Karen Reith, who I believe is going to be at a table out there with a sign-up sheet if there's things that you can have. And let me mention a couple others real quick. Quick, Compassion sponsorship. As a church, we encourage families and individuals to sponsor children through Compassion. And I know many are sponsoring through other good organizations like World Vision and some of those. But we specifically encourage uh, Compassion. And in, in many ways, in El Salvador. And there's other countries, again, we're not dictating where and when you can, you can sponsor somebody. But on March 6th, we're going to have Compassion Sunday, just two Sundays. If you don't sponsor a child, be praying about it now. God, is this something that you want us to step into? It's a way of serving the least of these. Um, Jas- you may not know this, but Jasper Plays Health and Wellness Center on Stony Plain Road every Monday gets a hot meal delivered from TCC as a result of, of, of the leftovers and things that are left from brunch this morning. So none of that goes to waste, and more food is made and added to it, and it's delivered. And so if you're free on a Monday morning, there's a ministry that you could easily get involved in. There's also something that takes place called our comfort food ministry. Some of these are our best-kept secrets. If you're sick and in need of some meals because you just can't cook for yourself, um, there are people that are willing to do that. Maybe you want to step up and be one of those that provides those meals. Often happens when, when somebody's welcoming a new baby and just three or four days of meals are provided just to kind of get them over that hump. Okay? This is just showing practical care for one another where we serve one another. Oh boy, I've gone way over, I'm sorry. Um, I've got like two minutes left. Um, you know, I remember a time in, in my life, I was in junior high, I'd just come to faith in Christ, I was 13 years old, so I was probably like grade eight, nine, and, um, and I somehow became convinced, I don't know if it was like I heard a message like this and it scared me or what, but, but I was convinced that Jesus was going to be coming soon, like real soon. And I wondered out loud to my mom, why even bother going to school? Now, I don't know if that was just a brilliant, you know, student in grade nine discovering a way to get out of homework or whatever. I mean, Jesus is going to come and then it's just all going to have been a big waste of time. But it didn't happen, obviously. And in my reading this week, I came across a writer's life theme that I think will be helpful for us as we process this message. I want to just close with this. He said this. It's Michael J. Wilkins. He wrote, Live as though Jesus is coming back today. Plan as though he's not coming back for 100 years. Right? So we live in the here and now. But we don't know when it's going to happen whether by Jesus returning or whether, as we all know it, life is fragile and fleeting. It can happen in an instant. But are we ready? Let's pray. Father, this is such a great 
passage. It's a hard one, but Lord, I just think of the joy and the hope that really should fill our hearts for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm glad, Lord, even in the video that we saw how hard it was for Jesus to say the words that he said. I, I know we're trying to figure out tone and how Jesus would have actually said that, but, but I do think that that reflects the heart of Jesus, the heart of God, who does not want anyone to perish, but he wants all to come to everlasting life. Lord, do a deep work in our lives and Help us to see how just serving people is just a natural byproduct of the fact that you have served us. But loving others is because you have loved us first. And so, Lord, help us as we seek to live in your way, in your will, and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.